Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. Don't worry about a thing. Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright. If you got a tummy ache or you don't feel right. Or if you have a nasty rash keeping you up at night. Don't worry, <laughs> Don't worry about, about a thing. thing. Don't worry. <laughs> Cause Atticus help will make you feel alright. I'm Ilana Rasbash and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. I am so lucky to be able to work, live, play and broadcast to you live on Radio Karam from this amazing place. If you'd like to join our conversation this evening, as always, you can text us in the studio on 0493 213 831. And if you miss those numbers, just hit the contact us on Instagram at Radio Architecture. My conversation partner this evening is Amy Muir. Amy is the director of Muir, a Melbourne-based architecture practice established in 2016. The practice engages in a range of projects, including residential, public and institutional briefs, bringing a sympathetic and strategic attitude to the varying contexts that they work within. The practice is underpinned by a firm belief in project-based research that investigates the language of memory and place. Muir has been recognised through state, national and international awards and the work has been widely published locally and internationally. In her previous role as Victorian President of the Australian Institute of Architects and a current lecturer at RMIT University, Amy is committed to establishing strong links between teaching, research, practice and public advocacy. Welcome to the program, Amy. Oh, thanks, Alana. Lovely to be here. A pleasure. I'm so excited that we get a chance to chat this evening. No, it's good. The first question I like to mm-hmm. ask all my guests on the program is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Oh, it, it is the NGV. Um, I have very clear memories of that um, and it I have a photograph that of my mum and I and I would have been a toddler but I have very clear memories after that of the spaces that um, were designed particularly the interiors externally the garden I have memories about that but the interiors the sounds the compressed spaces versus the the spaces that opened up um, and the sound of the, the escalators, the, the timber escalators, I remember them very clearly. There were timber back then. Yeah, yep, yep, they clattered. And um, I feel like a lot of the spaces were, the, the exhibition spaces were quite dark. Um, and then the Great Hall was, you know, this extraordinary experience as a child and, you know, always experiencing that room on the floor looking up. Um, so, yeah, and it was... Uh, the bamboo courtyard, I remember very clearly as well, um, all those original courtyards being what they were intended to be as external spaces. And um, yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those buildings that has stuck. The largest stained glass ceiling in the southern hemisphere, if I'm not mm. mistaken. Yeah, well in the yeah. Great Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. It's a I mean, it's an extraordinary space. Um, and yeah, and the, and the detailing of the columns that hold up. Unbelievably skinny. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. What, one yeah. of the formulas of beauty, making something so unbelievably complicated feel slim and elegant and exactly. thin and simple. Yeah, a downpipe. And then you were very fortunate to be selected together with Mark Jakes of Open Work to do the NGV Pavilion Commission. That was um, Double Ground, that mm-hmm. one was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that must have been amazing, going from early, early memories to be able to c- create something in, in this court, in the Grollo courtyard and yeah. the bamboo. That that's a it's a very special commission that project. I mean, it's a, a competition, so you know, an open, uh, unanimous competition. So there's 
uh, all it was when we entered. Um, it's gone through a couple of um, changes over the years, but um, or just in the last couple of years. But uh, we uh, that was a yeah. It's it's a beautiful thing to be given this opportunity to build within um, such a prominent sort of public space and within, you know, a garden setting of um, an institution like the NGV. And it, that project in particular obviously looked back at the building and, and understood its context and it became, a, you know, an investigation into the memory of place and the memory of it, um, you know, what does architecture become uh, within, an, uh, within a garden setting and so that was sort of what was underpinning that project. But I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it was a great opportunity and uh, we were actually were speaking to Nick Brunson who's the uh, current exhibitor or, you know, um, architect who's um, exhibiting in the garden and we were just sort of saying that it's this lovely little gift that you get given where um, after hours you get to be in this garden space, this locked garden, which is, you know, quite an extraordinary space within in Melbourne city uh, context. We're very, very lucky. Very indeed. lucky. It's, you know, and it's a, it's a yeah, it's a, an extraordinary space. And so this lovely after hours gardening and, you know, pottering around and doing things um, after hours when everyone else has sort of left the gallery. It's it's special. Double Ground was actually probably one of my most favourite pavilions on my, on my memory. And especially because for me, the geometry and the architecture really referenced Roy Ground's masterpiece mm-hmm. of the, the main NGV building. Mm-hmm. But what were some of the big ideas that were encapsulated in that project? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, there were a number of things. One was, first of all, what is the context that you're working within and having to make decisions about that and critical decisions. And um, I would suggest that one of the unfortunate things that happened to the NGV, yes, it had to happen, you know, through pragmatics, but the Roy Grounds building um, being undone um, by the Bellini um, extensions um, in the 90s, ended up sort of, you know, compromising the original intent of what Roy Grounds' building was. And, you know, the, the lovely thing about that original building was that there were three courtyards and those three courtyards were external space. And they effectively made up 50% of the floor area. So this amazing sort of understanding that the build, the original building was actually 50% garden or 50% courtyard or 50% space with air. And so that then um, allowed us to sort of think quite clearly about what architecture was in in a garden. And I think some of the confusion with that brief is uh, that comes out in the competition is that they're calling for a pavilion, which they're not. They're calling for an architecture commission. And so that idea of what is architecture in a garden became a lovely way of starting to sort of investigate what were the memories of the NGV and if we were going to concentrate on Roy Grounds's um, original building. And so um, this thing of what is memory as well started to be questioned and how do we remember things in architecture. And so I often sort of say as children we grow up in a house and so the house is our first sort of introduction to architecture but very, very quickly we are introduced to civic architecture and that's through the school, the library, the museum, the gallery. And so we are very fortunate as children to understand these fairly potent spaces um, and they're generous spaces, you know, and they they talk to uh, compression, expansion, light, um, they, they have a generosity about them. They've, you know, uh, there's a material quality to them that we don't necessarily experience in a home. And so those, those ideas started to sort of feed into what we were thinking about. And in particular, the other thing to remember about memory as a child is that we don't remember architecture through plan even though as architects we are obsessed with plans. <laughs> um, we have to draw an elevation to communicate what, how to build something, but we don't ever see buildings in elevation. We always see them in perspective. And then the, the uh, lovely thing about memory is that it's never, never 
complete. It's, it's always never perfect. Fragrant. It's never perfect. And so there's something quite lovely about that um, that allows for fragmentation. It allows for blurring. It allows for things to sort of overlap. And um, so there's that was sort of, yeah, that was part of the investigation as well uh, in terms of how we how we remembered the language of Roy Grounds. To your point that they're not necessarily looking for a pavilion of sorts, it's very much true. Some years mm. they're commissioning artwork or mm. an art installation yeah. of sorts and it's encouraged to be quite interactive and mm. experiential for people. Uh, one of those changing phenomena in Double Ground was the the sort of fog, the, the hazy, mm. hazy smoke moment. Uh, what, what, what story does that tell? So... One of the other sort of investigations that we did before we started designing was to say, what had everyone done before us? So we had, you know, John Wardle's um, pavilion, and I call it a pavilion, but um, commission. Um, and uh, there was there was a lineage between, you know, all the, the, the various pavilions. I think we were number four, um, commission. I keep calling it a pavilion now. <laughs> I've got to get that word out. It's because it's M pavilion season, <laughs> yes, I think. I know. It's true. Um but what was happening in the, the lineage was that um, there was already mist happening within the garden, like that was already something that the NGB had within their moat. Um, and then I know the um, the one that Vivian and, and um, Matt Studio, Matt Studio um, did, they started with the, you know, having the mist. That was mist. brilliant and hilarious. Amazing, haven't you always it? wanted? I know. All those, those um, wonderful, um, you know. Car wash. Children launching themselves off, you know, pink mounds into the mist. So we were, you know, effectively sort of borrowing little memories of things. But I think, you know, the the one of the photographs that we had of Roy Ground was with a, you know, his cigar, um, and so that sort of became, you know, this idea of, you know, the smoking room, and um, so you know, it it becomes something that during summer children can be in, and um, a, a room of of mist. So it was the mist room. Um, but I think, you know, they, what's interesting about those little experiential moments is that for children, they remember that. They remember, you know, the mist suddenly shutting down and then having to wait 10 minutes until it comes back on again. And if they're lucky to still be there 10 minutes later, they'll, they'll get another round. Um, but, you know, they may not have necessarily picked up on anything else. They might understand the scale of the corridor, which would have been quite tall for them. Um, but, yeah, those those things that become memories and you know for us they it, you know might have been based on Grounds, you know smoking a cigar but for them it's it's something else and I think also given that it's summer and it's hot it became a you know a sense of relief in the garden too. And that perfect bit of excitement for kids to mm. maybe want to come back to the gallery again. Yeah. And parents don't have to drag them along. <laughs> it's this incentive. Oh, you love that place. Remember, mm. remember you got to run around in that maze-like thing with the mist. Mm. Yeah. That fun encouragement. So you've done a number of projects now with Mark Jakes of Open Work. How did that collaboration begin? Um, well, we both uh, teach at RMIT and so met through RMIT and I think we were both, um, we were, we had separate studios and um, we were both on Flinders Lane. I was in Carlo and he was in Nicholson Building. And uh, we were starting to just sort of talk about, you know, the idea of collaboration and there was sort of, you know, mutual respect of each other's practices and um, work that we were undertaking and um, just sort of, decided that we would do – there was a, um, a landscape competition and ideas competition that we did for fun and laughed a lot and that was um, – yeah, it was a really fun thing to do and um, we enjoyed that a lot and so then started to sort of collaborate on some of these um, ideas competitions and there are certain projects that, you know, we cross over on um, – and then we've done research together as well. But I think when we when we had our two little studios, we then moved in together into a, a larger studio together and um, share a studio space um, on Elizabeth Street in Melbourne. And so that's that's yeah, that's been a really lovely thing. And I think you know that slippage. 
between landscape and architecture for both of us, that's a conversation that we like engaging with. Is the practice of open work predominantly looking at landscape architecture? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, their conversations are always with architects, you know, that, and um, or they're always with landscape architects or they're always, as Mark, you know, urban designers. So they're, they're um, I think, you know, if we, we talk about, you know, Mark and I often sort of say, you know, Double Ground and Victorian Family Violence Memorial, there is, when we never sort of distinguish between the architecture and the landscape. Yes, it's quite it a is, melting in those projects. Yeah, it, it, uh, they don't necessarily exist they, because they coexist and so they, they slip between mm-hmm. the two. And so we would never necessarily say you're the architect, I'm the landscape architect and vice versa. It's, you know, it's a conversation between the two disciplines and um, and we're quite happy for it to become a, a slippy, slippy thing. And much more, much more collaborative as well than yeah. some sort of, than some traditional projects are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, and that's, that's what's fun about it. You know, it's, um, you, you just, you're in it together and you, you share that that common kind of position as well and um which is which is a lovely thing to do the victorian family violence memorial very powerful work also blurs those lines between architecture landscape urban design sculpture Mm. and and public art really how does the architect or the I'll say architecture in the universal sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not not building specific, mm. but um, in, in the craft of it, really, the universal craft. How how does that capture the for for you in that project in um, Victorian Family Violence Memorial? How does it capture those those ideas and those memories? How's that transferred in in the built work? Yeah, so Victorian Family Violence Memorial was a really interesting project uh, in the sense that we had very strong connections with our stakeholders and that that is probably one of the most important things about that project mm, every project yeah mm. uh, yeah absolutely totally agree with you um 100% yes and so that, and that's what underpins collaboration at the end of the day that's that's what is fundamental um but i think in this instance we had uh, a site that uh, both mark and i thought was a great site because of its prominence and that it was very visible from the street. Right on the corner of Treasury Gardens and Treasury Place, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so it's on um, – uh, now I'm going to go blank. This is where I start going blank. St Andrew's Place. Yes, St Andrew's Place. Um, so it sits adjacent to Commonwealth Building and um, and then across the road from Fitzroy Gardens. And so it's a triangular site um, and – in that nature, it, it also has a fall me- metre fall on it. So there are a number of things about that site being adjacent to the Commonwealth Building. It already had um, and still does have a uh, sculpture and memorial to forced adoption practices, which um, is obviously a very sensitive um situation. Very dark part of Australian history. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, and so, and that had been placed in the site in a particular way because of its relationship to Commonwealth building. So I think, you know, and I'm starting talking about the site because I think that the site is a really interesting thing because it's adjacency to the Commonwealth building and to a landscape beyond... What happens inside the Commonwealth building? Uh, now it's 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 basically it's the Commonwealth. So you know it's um, parliament. You know the uh, sorry government does occupy that building um, and it's alive and well. And there's also the federal police are also um, in there as well. So they sort of overlook the site. So th- it's interesting now that if we think about uh, this memorial came out of the Royal Commission into um, Family Violence. It was one of the recommendations was to have a memorial that um, basically acknowledged the the situation that we have in our society. Uh, and so it it's a very positive thing that's come out of government, but obviously the history prior to that is is contentious. It's powerful to have that positioned right next to government as a reminder. Yeah. Really? Of exactly. Formerly 
yeah. awful policies and awful decisions. Exactly, exactly. So now it's almost like they're the they're they're looking after this site. So there's there's something that sort of quite gentle has we would hope has evolved from the design, hopefully, from it being positioned next to this building. Do you know if it's a place where people are able to come and grieve and experience? Yeah, their- so the memorial um, we. We worked very closely with uh, Victim Survivors Advisory Council that were part of um, the Office for Women, so that came out of the Office for Women. And there were two um, members of that committee, um, Jen and Russell, who we worked with very closely and they were in our first schematic design presentation right until handover construction and they were in all the meetings. And so... They had a lot of oversight in terms of what we were presenting and provided us with extraordinary feedback. Um, So it was a dialogue between them and obviously the City of Melbourne. It was also a very strong dialogue with Sarah Lynn Reese as well, who was our Indigenous advisor. Um, And we were at the time, um, because it was contested land, we were um, speaking to three um, uh, language groups um, and so they also their response to the brief was also that consultation process was incredibly important and extraordinarily valuable to the outcome that ended up um, resulting. At what stage did that engagement begin? Uh, so the engagement with Jen and Russell was day one, uh, but we had been provided with they had gone through a very exhaustive um, consultation process for four years prior or two wow. years, but it was, you know, over a four-year period. So we had a very good rock-solid brief that was provided to us by City of Melbourne, which was which was a blessing. It was great. Um, the Indigenous consultation happened once we started the project um, and Sarah was obviously part of our team from day one. So that pretty much started straight away. Um, and yeah, it was, it was good. It was a, you know, it was, these processes always take time. And I think this is a thing that we need to remember that, um, good consultation, good engagement with lived experienced people. Um, you can't rush that. You cannot rush it and it should not be rushed. And it is the most valuable part, as you were saying before and acknowledging before, it is fundamental to the success of, projects and getting great architecture especially when there's heavy emotion associated and heavy memory that you have to hold space for yeah yeah so how did that uh concept of trauma in informed design um play out in the, the architecture and universal architecture i use that word broadly yeah yeah um so i think for mark and i there were quite a number of conversations about this um, initially before we were, um, uh, while we were, you know, going through the tendering process and sort of talking about it. And it became obvious that um, we couldn't, uh, you can't imply anything. Uh, You can't necessarily use words because words also hold association. So it's this, how do you, how do you not imply too much or impose too much on a space for it then to become too much of something that is not able to be adopted by someone else? And so the restraint uh, was one where we wanted it to advocate for its cause and so the purple planting became really important. So um, that became you know, uh, a thing of the idea of uh, um, a garden that has a response to seasons and shifts and changes. And Liz Herbert did an extraordinary um, from open work, you know, in terms of the way that those plants fold and, you know, rise and fall over the year. And that, you know, sort of almost the landscape becomes the thing that gets held by the memorial um, but, yeah, words, we wanted to exclude words. Um, but when once we started engaging with the, the client and the, um, the stakeholders, it became very obvious. We were thinking, all oh, right, okay, so there's statistics. We can, we can rely upon statistics to be a, a measuring stick that we can use. No, there are no firm statistics associated with family violence. 
Um, so that then became, you know, sort of an issue. Because the data of, we have is the tip of the iceberg, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And to acknowledge anyone specifically is problematic because we don't know who else has passed as a result of this terrible situation um, that we have within society that touches everyone. And so I think that that's the, that's the, the, the key message is at the end of the day, it is everywhere. And we are all, you know, effectively surrounded by this and we all have a responsibility to, um, you know, be talking about this. Um, so, the, so this idea that a memorial also typically is something that is a line in the sand and that is, you know, states, I am this, I was this, um, whereas this is what we refer to as a memorial in motion. It doesn't have a beginning and an end. Um, it will, you know, be there. I think, you know, it's got a 100-year lifespan. Um, how, does it, how does it evolve over time? What will it be? Um, so for us, the idea of what a memorial in motion is, is it something for people to come and grieve and be, pause, reflect, but also a place of education. And so that's really important that school kids can come to this place and, um, you know, conversations can be had about what this place is and what it's for. And that that's a really important part of how, how we can evolve this conversation. Yeah, and what, and what it means for sure. Yeah. Whereas um, th- things about environmental safety in a way that the memorial was physically safe for people mm. to come are quite prominent in your in your thinking. Yeah. Like it, it certainly doesn't have a roof. It doesn't mm. have any corners. Yeah. Yeah, so safety is a big, big one. So being able to um, see, you know, and feel that you can always turn your back and not feel like you, you know, you can't turn your back. Um, so the one of the obviously there's a number of strategies about the memorial from a planning point of view, which is um, memorials typically operate through either one or two people occupying that space at once, or ten, or five hundred. Yeah. And so, how do we expand and contract space was really important. And so the landscape became a really good opportunity to be able to do that and to set up a number of platforms and um, procession spaces being the corridor, you know, this um, that effectively then provides, um, you know, wheelchair access um, into the space as well. So there's, you know, there's every every move that we made has a sort of double, double purpose in a way. And um, so... When we think about the height, this height difference on the site, there was four metre height difference. And so we sort of struck what we refer to as hip height, which feels like a comfortable height for everyone because children can relate to that height. Um, It's good for accessibility as well. And it's also a very sort of comfortable height for people to be able to see through things as well and um, so that effectively became the Dayton and you can see it rising and falling in the space but in the space proper it's 800 mil high and then as it moves through the site where the lie of the land shifts and changes it gets higher or lower. And Four metres is massive for such a tiny site yeah, it really. Is, it is, yeah, yep. So, um, you know, and and the concrete platform is effectively, it's actually because we've got, there was, the memorial sits underneath the canopy of an existing um, elm that was on the site and that became a really important sort of symbol for the site and for obviously the victim survivors as well because it's, you know, it's the passing of time, which is a very important thing when we talk about grief um, is how time passes and so it effectively because of the tree protection zone all the structure hovers over that so it's sort of a deck and so the the yeah the structure is sort of um, suspended above suspended it. above it and then it sort of falls away into the site and down and, and um, it sits in there like like a black ribbon mm. not like a black armband that's been on unfurled <laughs> at the end of the game or that's that's sitting through in that moment but it also has a movement and a dynamism because people's experiences are non-linear, they're they're not stagnant, there's domestic violence has ups and downs, life has ups and downs, grief has ups and downs. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think so that one of the other important things was having an embedded smoking vessel in the memorial and that was really important because um, any, you know, any ceremony that it's undertaken there now has a smoking ceremony, which is fantastic. So uh, that obviously came out of the consultation process, but I think you know, the, the nature of we uh, we kept sort of talking, everyone kept sort of saying where's the wall or what's the memorial, how do we define the memorial and we just said, well, it's, there's, it's, it it's is a memorial, it's, it's, it's a memorial, <laughs> there's a room, there's a, there's a wall, there's a, you To know. your point about memory, it's almost like people were expecting the National War Memorial in Canberra with this yeah. expansive wall and... Yeah, it's sort of, it, it, it is interesting and so, it, and there was this, um, you know, we, we always knew that there was a wall and I've got, I'm showing my fingers, inverted commas, um, that we kept referring to as the memorial wall and that's what it's called uh, and that was to acknowledge in some capacity the enormity of this issue. And uh, we kept, yeah. It, it also peeks out from the surface of this terrain for me, mm. like connecting back to that sort of tip of the iceberg idea that the statistics that we have, what is reported in the media, very yeah. rarely yeah. Uh, the, the uh, action and consequences that is brought against offenders is a tip of the iceberg. Yeah, it's it's a, deva- it's a devastating thing, um, and the quietness around it. What is great about all of these little interventions that are happening, and a royal commission is really fundamentally important. Uh, and for a memorial to come out of that means that it, it, things become more visible, and that's that's. Very important. Very, very important. As professionals, we're getting a much better understanding, especially in contemporary practice, about trauma-informed design. Yeah. But how do we as professionals start – how do we start begin to understand shame? Mm. And how, how does architecture begin to grapple with shame? Because mm. for victims, survivors, for families, that, that emotion yeah. is there at the same time. Yeah. So I think oh, it's tricky. So, I, well, I think the first thing that all of us – know as architects is that we need to listen and listen very slowly and carefully and expansively. Yeah, expansively. So um, that's really important. And I, I sort of, I think also the other thing that we do as architects is that we are, we, we have to be objective when we design and, you know, through universities sort of talk about it as designing through ideas rather than designing through emotions so that you can step back and allow yourself to hear what is very important, which is not your subjective opinion, it's actually what you're hearing. And um, I think there were, there were lots of stories and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of stories that we will never hear. And there, we hope that there will be lots more stories in order for that to become more normalised. And because in not normalising the issue as something that we accept, but knowing that it isn't something that we should accept, but in talking about it, um, I think uh, Jen always sort of says, you know, if we can talk about this, then, then people will be aware of it. When we, you know, when you talk about shame, shame is the the thing that, unfortunately, if we don't talk about something, it becomes shameful, and it stops people from getting help, and it stops exactly. people from getting to safety, doesn't it? Yeah, hundred percent. It's also the power of that memorial being so prominent, so publicly visible on the corner, and also open. Mm. It's not yeah. an enclosed space that people yep. go into and hide away in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's why, I mean, Mark and I were, you know, we. It, it, there is a bit of a dilemma sometimes where you sit in the site and it, it is a, you know, there is a noisy road that sits, that it sits adjacent to. Um, but I remember when we had the minute silence uh, at the opening and because there's a pedestrian crossing right there and all the car, like the timing of it was extraordinary. All the cars just came to, you know, a halt and then the pedestrian noise, you know, the clicking noise of the pedestrian lights 
were playing while we had our minute silence and there was something quite quite extraordinary about that because you can't control you can't control these things but so that you know the the, the so there's the trade-off and when you're trying to create a, a reverent exactly. environment yeah and I think yeah. having it public probably yeah. certainly wins there exactly. for, for the ideas yeah. and the values behind that project. Yeah. And I think the, the other thing that we thought was fantastic as well is that there's this borrowed view of Fitzroy Gardens and um, sort of all, often sort of talk about uh, in memorials and when you attend, you know, uh, vigils, church services, you know, uh, spaces of ritual, you mightn't necessarily focus on the task at hand, the person who is delivering the speech um, or the sermon, uh, but you might look beyond. And so the idea that that landscape provides an opportunity to look beyond and that that's, that's really important. And I think that, you know, when we talk about public space, this is the great thing is to acknowledge that we are, all our adjacencies are super, super valuable. And reclaiming it a little bit from the government buildings. Like that's a very interesting point Mm. about borrowing that view or even better, let's say, taking back that view because otherwise Mm. it's the manicured lawns of government buildings Mm. and the manicured garden beds and you sort of, you'll wander through in your lunch break if you work nearby, but it somehow feels forbidden to perch yourself there mm. and now this memorial gives permission for people to enter that space. Yeah, and and I think this is the thing is that people sit there and they have their lunch and that's good. That's great. You know, people are using the space um, not necessarily to be there to remember but they're also there to sit and be. These are all the things that are part of life together, aren't they? Mm. Yep. Life and death and memory yes. and grief, it, it all it all coexists and continues. Yeah. You're very much interested in memory in your work. Mm. How do you bring that into residential projects and like when you work on single family homes? Yeah. So I think um, a lot of what we do when we talk about memory, it's a way of talking about context. And as architects, we are very obsessed with that word <laughs> <laughs> um, and context in the, the, the sense of, you know, what what where are we where are we what are we sitting in amongst and what are we you know, even doing who's next door and you know what does that look like and I think it's because we're all madly searching for an Australian architecture as well yeah I, I think I think it's just more you know what yeah what do you see how do you interpret it and you know the planning scheme asks you to do that and so you know there's there's an ongoing conversation about context in in architecture um, what we're interested in, I think, um, when I talk about memory, I'm interested in understanding what those nuances are about place in order to try and find a language that describes that place. And so, uh, you know, NGV was, you know, a, a very clear example as to what you see and through the, the collaging process it became muted, it became distorted, it became smudged um, and people may not necessarily have known what they were walking through uh, until they got to the back of the pavilion and looked back at the NGV at Roy Grounds's building and then you could see in your foreground, you could see the the remnants of the, the collage and the remnants. The zigzag. Of the, There's yeah. your reverse overlook again. Mm. So I think, you know, um, you know, there was... Yeah, there, there's uh, there's this sort of understanding, you know, I suppose a, a way of how do we how do we find a language for this project, and rather than it being something that we're bringing from somewhere else and putting on this site, it's it's an acknowledgement of what is there and an acknowledgement that we're not wanting to uh, we're not wanting to sit out of that site. We want to sit into the site. And so much like, you know, the, the projects that we've done with um, NGV and family violence, I mean, a lot of the conversations that, you know, Mark and I first started having were around, you know, both of us uh, um, really, really like <laughs> um, Enric Morales and Carme Pinos's um, Igualada Cemetery. And so, you know, and that, that becomes a really sort of robust understanding of what a landscape is. And so I think in our residential work, 
light is really important, views beyond is really important, the role of landscape is very important. So they all sort of become how do you address that from the street? What is the role, you know, um, not dissimilar to how we think about public work. Um, but that, I think... Oh, that, I, oh, no, I was just going to say that the, these elements, this be, these beautiful moments, they, they really contribute to the experience of a really great house. Mm. Uh, that extra value add that working with an architect and architecture brings to you because a very efficient floor plan, mm. extra amazing storage, like these are the fundamental things everyone mm. just expects, right? We mm. want the house to work really well mm. and we want it to function and serve our needs. Yeah. But then how can you elevate the way you live in it? Yeah. So I think, well, one when, when we talk about collaboration, one of the things that we really, really enjoy about residential architecture is the, the relationship you develop with the client. And it's an extraordinarily special thing. And it's actually a real privilege because very, very quickly you're being exposed to the way that people live and understanding their nuances and understanding their history. It's very and intimate. It's it very is incredibly intimate and um, very special. And a lot of, you know, as any project, you start with a brief and then you interpret that brief. And so, you know, the, the nuances of, of, of that brief define how the house starts to evolve. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I would say that, you know, I, um, I love civic buildings because civic buildings provide hierarchy and they provide, you know, very intimate spaces and then they also sort of define what's important and what's not important in a building. You know, a toilet, yes, not so important and, you know, versus entrance, yes, probably a little bit more important and, you know, so they set, they set up a, a hierarchy and I think houses are not dissimilar in that regard and so what is the hierarchy in the plan, what is the hierarchy in terms of ceiling heights and they, they all sort of um, start to feed into that as well. What's been your favourite project so far? Oh, out of all projects? Yeah. Oh, look, I think oh, that's that's a tricky one because I think there's there's lots of there's lots of lovely I think the thing like I think it's actually interesting when you do a timeline of your projects and you see where things where you think because something finished after one that finished before, it might look like that came after, but in actual fact, it was designed before that one. So there's there's an interesting. I think that's what's interesting about projects is the evolution that you see in terms of how things evolve. And uh, we have obviously, you know, we've got building codes that are becoming stricter and stricter. So they're restricting particular ways that we build um, and understand um, space. So, you know, there's, there's evolution always occurring. And I think, yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in the conversations that happen between projects and how they sort of slip and slide between each other. I think that's, that's what I'm, yeah. And the, the chance to bring forward and, and realise ideas or establish that continuity perhaps uh, across the practice or across the body of work yeah, from one project to the next. Yeah, exactly. So they're all I your children, you don't well, have a favourite. Well, no, I think, I think at the end of the day because I think – the, the lovely thing about practice is that you are, and research and teaching, is that you are constantly having to challenge yourself and evolve. And where, you know, I, I start every project through writing. I don't ever draw when oh, I that's start. That's really interesting. And so it's, uh, the writing is a, a process of asking questions, research, um, and then it's it evolves into uh, it's almost like the return brief is um, someone might call it prose, but I call it words, you know. Mm. And it becomes a way of me being able to sort of solidify uh, the the, res the research that sort of happened to that point, and you know, really sort of reduce it right down um, mm. so that the brief becomes tighter. And really distilling to the essence of, mm. of what that client wants from you. Yeah. Speaking of innovation and, and the future, where do you see architecture oh. in the profession going? Oh, do Lana. You, do you have a forecast for me <laughs> and for the listeners? Well, it's just – it's fascinating. I'm, I'm sort of grappling at the moment. Uh, so there's a couple of things. Uh, 
I'm grappling at the moment and these might sound like very negative comments but they're not intended to be because they're just like how do we how do we evolve through this little moment in time which is sustainability and as architects it's very very difficult every day to think about what sustainability is when we're digging holes in the ground and pouring materials and requiring materials that we hope will last but we see time and time again buildings being pulled down that haven't lasted maybe even 30 years and so there's this sort of you know lament that I I find happens so striving forward in a very rudimentary way is you know how how can we ensure that our buildings have the the ability to um uh, you know, adaptive reuse, really very important. Um, how do we ensure that buildings have longevity and are able to adapt with future needs? Now, we can't anticipate what those are, but we would hope that buildings don't have to be removed to build something else because something gets very superseded. It would be nice if we could try and not do that anymore. That would be a great thing. Yeah. Um, but AI, wow, what the hell? What are we going to do? This is strange. I can't get my head around it right now. And it's um, – I'm, I'm trying to work out how we, how we accommodate this extraordinary thing which will be um, very much part of our lives moving forward and what does that mean for architecture. And I have no answers at this point in time but I think it's, it's going to be a really interesting thing because it's moving – obviously moving quite quickly – uh, the conversation it feels like we're all like bleh, bleh, <laughs> about the conversation around AI so I think that I, I feel like that's something that we're all going to have to work out how to how do we how do we use this certainly something to confront and legislate around because the development and technology is running faster than we can regulate exactly. faster exactly. Than we can legislate and yeah. faster we can even communicate yeah to exactly. people so like artists are all I'm very concerned yeah. for the intellectual property violation and yeah. the fact that some of these models are trained on stolen artwork basically yeah, yeah. And, and so th- they're all very concerned mm. and then some architects are incredibly concerned and mm. others just flagrantly admitted in architecture magazines that they do use that for concept generation <laughs> yeah uh, yeah for concerns of other misplaced <laughs> architectural values I certainly don't um uh, align myself with that with that mm. office and I don't think many professionals I- in Melbourne do but mm. it, it's a yeah very very fair point oh, where are we going to get to that moment where the automation powers mm. will remove the unnecessary work and we can retain mm. that uh intellectual and moral craft mm. really the decision mm. making and the ideas that is architecture and mm. that produces yep. architecture but i guess i'm an optimist on yeah. this topic oh no in the sense such an, yeah you you are you, inherently you are an optimist being an architect you can't not <laughs> yes. be it's not it's impossible not to be but yeah i think look these are all these are things that are that are, that are in our realm and um yeah I, think, yeah. I don't believe they can replace us, though, or the, the idea that AI or machines could it could replace architects because they mm. can do a, a floor plan more efficiently mm. um, by pure physics and mathematics. But uh, I, I do believe that as long as people need buildings, buildings will still be relevant mm. and built architecture and therefore mm. architects will still be relevant. Mm. For for as long as we need buildings to live in and mm. and, and function, and so mm. somewhere in that process, mm. a human will still have to make those decisions because the machine can't in feel those feelings or empathise or support or hold space for the feelings we talked about, like shame and mm. grief. Mm. Yeah, I think you know when we talk about public space, there is. Uh, uh, I think we're seeing we're actually seeing some quite extraordinary things occurring with, you know, um, Indigenous engagement is doing amazing, you know, we're, we're seeing a, a, a very significant shift in how we understand public space. AI can't well replace there. that. No, no. Like the no. oldest continuous living <laughs> culture, which exactly. we're so blessed to have. Exactly. And we're, we're living the question of how to be in that collaboration, yep. how to be in that relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think there's, I think you're right. And I think that, uh, you know, all the things that I was just sort of talking about in terms of listening and understanding, they're human connections. And I think 
when we talk about public space, when we talk about human connection, when we talk about Indigenous qualities, connection to land, uh, connection to place, they are fundamental things that are driven by human interaction and conversations and they cannot occur without that Absolutely. process. And I think, you know, the, the role of uh, – one thing I was going to say is the role of advocacy is, is really important, I think, in, in architecture and in the built environment. And Victorian Family Violence Memorial, I would say, is, you know, an example that, you know, a memorial can be. Like it's, it's a very overt way of advocating for something. Um, but we're seeing more and more in our public spaces the ability to advocate for people and advocate for equality, um, which is, you know, it's it's a wonderful thing. Fundamental to our Australian values exactly. as well. Exactly. You, in your role as Victorian Chapter President of the Australian Institute of Architects, one of, that, one of the components of that is critical is, is advocacy. Mm. H- how is your time and... The, the role actually extended, didn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I look back on that time. I was, yeah, we were talking about this before, weren't we? So I think um, when I think about that time, it was pre-COVID. So it was two years pre. So it was 2018, 2019. And I was handing over the baton at the beginning of 2020. And we, no one wanted to step into the role, of course, because the world was um, very quickly changing. So I stayed on and, um, and Rob Stent ended up sort of stepping in. He was a past Victorian president um, 10 years prior. So he very graciously stepped in and we shared the role um, because I was at the end of my... At the it's end a of huge my, commitment. Yeah. It's a volunteer look, it's, position. It's a volunteer too, position. And look, I, uh, it was... It was um, it was a wonderful thing to do, uh, an enormous sort of uh, privilege in terms of, you know, um, uh, being involved in the conversations that uh, the Institute is and also, you know, that we could be involved in. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, was exhausted by the end. <laughs> so, you know, rolling into COVID was, was uh, not much fun, but uh, COVID was COVID. But I think, you know, some of the role of advocacy is incredibly important and I think that's why I was really attracted to um, being part of the Institute. I'd been part of the Institute for quite a number of years in terms of being on various committees and had been part of Chapter Council for a number of years. And I see that role as being fundamental to what we do in architecture. Uh, we have a responsibility effectively to the public uh, and so the role of advocacy, not only obviously, you know, within the Institute, it's to our members, but more broadly, it's to uh, the, you know, the community at lunch. And so, I, yeah, it was a, um, it was a really, uh, there were, there were a lot of issues that were happening at that time. The Shergold Weir report had just come out in April, 2018, uh, which then was obviously talking to, you know, um, the s- systemic problems that we had within our construction industry. How were we going to um, overcome these? What were some of the recommendations in order to address these issues? Um, which then really sort of, you know, I think one of the things that I, um, I, I was very keen to work out how best to communicate do not whinge, <laughs> and um, and also uh, anecdotal evidence is very difficult to present in because it becomes emotional, and it gets lost in words very quickly. Data, 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 data. Yeah. So Paula says talk, the exact same yes, thing. Right? Exactly. Always, always, always talk through facts, and then there is no emotion. It just is what it is, and so uh, one of the things you know that was coming out of Shergold Weir report was, you know, that there was an issue with um, documentation, lack of documentation, which then leads to, well, what's happening within the novated contract, which is, you know, the contract between, obviously, the contract was with the client and then it gets handed over to the builder. It doesn't necessarily mean that the uh, documentation has been completed yet for tender. It's partly complete. Yeah, the architect stops working for the client and starts working for the builder about exactly. halfway through. Yeah, and they all depending have to build on the yeah, depending on when. what when. So there aren't 
any real rules in the game. So that's the other problem. Whereas, you know, a traditional contract, there are stages and you know what those stages are and once the stage is complete, you move on to the next stage. And it's architect administered as yeah. an impartial administrator yeah. of the contract. Yeah. So it's – yeah, exactly. So – Anyway, so we um, ended up doing a national survey of our members of um, for Novation and a whole lot of things came out of that which were, you know, good good reasons as to why we, you know, undertake Novated contracts and also the, the very compromised conditions that are coming out of Novated contracts as well. And that then sort of set up basically the ability to establish um, – what we referred to as coded novation, and then you know over the years it's turned, uh, it's now been evolved into a deed of novation. So they they then become um, documents that we could uh, effectively talk to industry about, talk to government about, advocate through, uh, but also to assist our members in um, you know because at the end of the day, you know we have no standard contracts anymore. Uh, so that's problematic and uh, it just means that we're, we're, all <laughs> we're all trying to find a level playing field. So, um, th- yeah, that was the purpose of doing that. Have we seen notable change in that space since? Uh, look, um, I, I, I would have to – I'm probably not the best person to speak to about that. Um, you, you might have a better under- reading of that. Um, but I think, look, you know – I think is there's a there's a lot happening in the industry, unfortunately, and I think we've we've had a pandemic, which has really muddied the waters, um, while we're trying to have reform. You know, there was there was huge push for reform, and then we had COVID, and now we've got eco- economic you know issues, and so all of these pressures start to really impact the way that the profession. Operates. And it's something like 30% of the Australian population is directly associated with, employed by, or affected by the construction industry. Mm, yeah. Which is a massive number. Yeah, it's huge. It's and, huge. and the rippling effects, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whereby design services are sometimes that canary in the coal mm. mine. Yep. Of, of what's going to happen later downstream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, I, I mean, once again, I think, you know, all of these things are about ensuring that we're evolving, we're not just accepting. And so, uh, you know, the Shergold Weir report um, that was, you know, commissioned by the, the um, Building um, Ministers Forum was fundamental to making change and that, you know, is, was important, very important and still needs to be built on, obviously. And improving that procurement practice is really, in my opinion, fundamental to great architecture and innovation. Yeah, exactly. Because if we can't get that right at the start... Yeah. It, the the flow and effects downstream just and aren't going to support amazing yeah. public architecture. Exactly. And it comes, once again, it comes down to relationships. So if we have a contract that doesn't allow for efficient relationships then that, that everything starts to sort of come untangled. Or kind relationships and instead is combative. Yeah. I'm mindful of the time. Oh, I yeah. want to okay. ask. I want to ask my last question. Okay, yes. And that's what gives you hope? <gasps> what gives me hope? Well, um... I think this year has been, in in the world of architecture, I think this year has been a wonderful year to see Kirsten Thompson being um, uh, on a... uh, Awarded the gold medal. Yeah, the gold medal, which is our highest honour within our industry. And she... So there are 63 gold medals that have been given since 1960 and... Five, uh, three of those have been given to male and female partnerships, acknowledging them, and two have been given to women in their own right. And so Kirsten is our 2023 gold medalist, which is really, really exciting and important move. So, you know, that's out of 63, only to have two women um, in their own right is is a pretty astounding statistic. Here, here. Um, and then we also ended the year acknowledging Maggie Edmund, yes. um, who joins now Peter Corrigan in being acknowledged uh, in 2003 as the gold medalist. And so that is a really wonderful thing to have happened this year as well. And 20 I think years overdue. Exactly. 
So it's now been reversed, which is fantastic. Uh, and I think that that sort of signals what, what you know, the future should Amazing. hold. So I think that, yes. I think, I think you know, when we talk about uh, the, the lie of the land, it's when we, talk, we haven't even spoken about gender this evening, which is one of my favourite topics when we talk about architecture. But I think that, you know, this year it's, it's, um, it's a wonderful year to celebrate. And a really great moment to remind listeners that Edmund and Corrigan's Keysborough Church of the Resurrection is just really down the road from oh, where we are fantastic. at the moment. Yes, just this up is at, right. Just up Edithfield <laughs> Road, probably about a 10-minute drive from, from here in the Radio Caram studio. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Amy. Thank you, Alana. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman. Won't you please take me along for a ride? This is Dave Crosby. Jim McGlynn. And it's very good to be on your show, man.